0: Uh, we're in Galatians 5. Last week we covered Galatians 5, 1 through 12. And there were basically three points um, that, that I made throughout the course of that meandering sermon. Uh, the first one was that the gospel does not offer license or legalism, but liberty. And what I suggested was um, we may either have freedom freedom. and and vitality and human flourishing through a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, or we can be in slavery to sin and the law, under the curse of the law. Either way uh, looks different, but either way also in one sense looks the same, because your life, if you're in relationship with Christ, your life is going to be marked by repentance and faith and an eager desire to relate to the Savior um, through regular prayer, through the study of his word, through fellowship with uh, his people. And if you're in the bondage of uh, legalism, in bondage to the law, um, or you're in bondage to licentiousness and serving the desires of the flesh, then your life is going to be marked by anxiety and anger. Um, Both ways also have difficulty. Whether you're in relationship with Christ or not, gas costs the same amount, right? We don't get a discount rate on uh, things just because we're Christians. In fact, uh, I suspect we're headed to a season where we will pay far more. But only one way has soul freedom. So what you're going to endure in a sin-fallen world can be dramatically impacted by having your soul in the right condition with your creator. It doesn't necessarily cure cancer or COVID, but it will cure the curse of being out of relationship with the one who made you. So only one way has freedom. Second, I said that the issue at hand is one of relationship rather than conduct. Um, License, has addiction, misery, and enslavement to the insatiable appetites of the flesh. So that if you are living a life in in licentious disregard for all of God's or any of God's moral principles, what in fact happens is you become enslaved to the very thing you claimed you were free to do. Legalism has self-righteousness, bitterness, envy, wrath, and angry entitlement. In either case, Christ is of no advantage to you. In relationship with Jesus Christ, what the gospel declares to us is that there is freedom. In license and in legalism, the sinner will in effect sever themselves from that offer of freedom and sever themselves from Jesus. License views grace as cheap, legalism views grace as unnecessary either way you cut yourself off from it and the source of it but on the path of liberty on the path of freedom through relationship with God where legalism and license have been put away we abide under the constant supply of grace from God You know this because your sins are regularly confessed to him and the guilt and stain of those sins is taken away. Your conscience is clear. Thus, the pleasures of communion with God are unending. We have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is about relationship, not so much about conduct. When you have God on your side as it were, you're going to be far less consumed with what other people think about you. There is freedom there. Stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. The fear of man brings a snare, a trap, shackles. In Christ, there is freedom from a preoccupation of gaining the approval of those around you. When you are in the company of the king of kings, the temptation to sin loses some potency. Like when you're a kid and your mother or father are right there, the odds of you doing something that's displeasing to them go down. When they're not there, the odds go up. When you're in relationship with God, you will behave in a way that is more pleasing to him. You will tend to say no to sin. Where you do fail, where you do stumble or even run headlong into sin, you can boldly approach the throne of grace to ask for help and forgiveness. The issue is one of relationship rather than conduct. And then finally, we looked at the permanent nature of our liberty. For the child of God, there, there can't be a real desire to return to death and slavery. Once you're in Christ, it's permanent, partly because why would you want to go back? So I shared that letter from Jordan Anderson to his old owner from his plantation days as a, an illustration of how we should view our former life. Would you go back to the plantation, to to being owned, to being beaten, to not being compensated for your labor? Or would you stay in freedom, in relationship with God? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So then this week, we'll begin to address the most common potential error of liberty. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 13. If I can find it, there we go. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think that these verses are pretty obvious and easy to understand. As true as that is, please be mindful. Um, We have younger people in our midst, and we have those who didn't necessarily grow up in church learning Bible speak their whole lives. So um, they might benefit from an explanation or at least an answer to this question, what does Paul mean, or what does the Bible mean when it talks about the flesh? And I'm hoping that just by asking the question, you might put yourself in my position just for a moment. How do you answer that question? What does the Bible mean when it talks about the flesh? How do you explain that to somebody? You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Well, after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned and broke everything, we understand that the nature of mankind was changed. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they were righteous. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they were in perfect communion and relationship with God. And part of this is because because of the way God made them, their desire was to be pleasing to God. So they wanted the same things that God wanted for them. Their hearts loved the things that God loved, and they loved being with God. So this is before the fall, the relationship that Adam and Eve as human beings had with God was healthy and good. Because they believed Satan's lie and chose to eat from the tree which God had commanded them not to eat, that friendship with God was broken. They didn't have the same relationship with God anymore after they sinned against him. Instead of being controlled, therefore, by a heartfelt pleasure in God's company, and instead of loving the same things that God loves... Adam and Eve were controlled now by their own desires and their own desires were run amuck. Remove the restraint of relationship with the creator. The design of the creator becomes corrupted. The image is marred and the desires follow suit. Right? Um, if, if you think about it in the terms that Judges puts it, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody just did whatever was right in their own sight. Well, for Adam and Eve and the humanity that descended from them, there was no king, and everybody just did what was right in their own sight. Now, if you've never purchased and consumed an entire bag of Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, (laughs) because your parents prohibit you from consuming the quantity of sweets that you would like to, what you think is you're missing out on something, that you have a good design for yourself, the enjoyment of all things peanut buttery and chocolatey. Once you do get some money and you do purchase a bag of peanut butter cups and consume them, at least the lion's share of them in one sitting, you suffer the sickness which will undoubtedly follow. And you begin to understand the problem with the desires of the flesh. There is a self-destructive bent to all of your fleshly desires. The tendency to take even that which is good and misuse it so that it becomes for you a poisonous thing, is a desire of the flesh when the Bible talks about the flesh especially in the New Testament what's in view is all things carnal, physical and potentially sinful let me quote the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature (laughs) aren't you glad? I own these books so you don't have to oh, volunteer fire department Oh, that's fortuitous, actually, because now you'll pay special attention to this boring reading that I'm about to do. These are my words. The first three are my words. The flesh is the physical body as functioning entity. In Paul's thought especially, all parts of the body constitute a totality known as flesh which is dominated by sin to such a degree that whatever flesh is, all forms of sin are likewise present, and no good thing can there live. Well, that was helpful, wasn't it? The reason you want to do things that you know are not pleasing to God, the reason you want to do things that have proven to be self-destructive in the past You've done them before, and you know how this works out. The reason you still have the desire to do those things, the reason that fear and shame and guilt are so prevalent in the human experience is that our natural inclinations, the things that we want, ever since the fall of man into sin, Those desires of the flesh are contrary to the original design. If you recall from the very first sermon in Galatians back in February, we saw that sin creates separation between us and God, and that was for two reasons. Number one, because God is holy and cannot be in the presence of sin, he refuses to be. Number two, because we are sinful and God is holy, we don't want his light shining on our deeds. So we separate ourselves from him. Now, that is not to say, excuse me, that because you are made up of flesh, your physical body should be harmed or mutilated or bruised or disregarded or uncared for because of the sinful things that it does. When the Bible says flesh, it is a reference to our fallen, sinful nature, not a reference to your skin, your muscles, or the connective tissue underneath. If God intended you to harm your body or despise it, he would not have given the sixth commandment, do not murder. So to the teenager who finds some kind of psychological relief, in the application of wounds to your own body, let me warn you, you are an image bearer of God yet. And to mar that image is to dishonor the creator. Get help, please, from somebody with degrees hanging on their wall. Verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Well, now do we understand what we mean by the flesh? The desires of your heart, the desire to sin, the carnal nature that you have, even as a Christian, there is this propensity in you to do that, which is wrong, right? So keeping in mind, all that i've said about liberty over the last couple of months this god-given release from bondage to law by the free gift of grace purchased by jesus christ liberty keeping in mind everything that i've said about liberty the last couple of months we have been declared righteous by the judge justification have i talked about that the last few yes (laughs) The verdict given to us when we anticipated it would be guilty, the verdict given to us was not guilty. And all of the corresponding relief that floods in when you expect to be condemned, but instead find that someone else has paid the price and you are released from your guilt and the obligation that it carries, comes in... And our hearts are so impacted that we're able to breathe deeply for the first time and then the next breath is one made up of shame and fear because while the judge has declared us right, we are not yet in relationship with him. So the judge not only calls us righteous, not only forgives us our sin, but takes us into his family. We are adopted into the family of the one against whom we had sinned. We are given an inheritance by the one who had every right to condemn us for our moral failure to eternal punishment. And as a member of the family of God, something happens that doesn't happen when we are justified and adopted. There's yet something else. See, justification and adoption give us the rights of children, right? But it doesn't give us the nature Of children. So God has another T-I-O-N word. As members of the family of God, we are given the nature of his children by sanctification. You cannot possibly receive God's justification and adoption and then use the freedom that he has graciously given you to pursue the evil from which he has rescued you. You cannot possibly Receive justification and adoption from the Father and then use the freedom that you've gained because of his forgiveness and his mercy and his kindness. You cannot use that freedom to do evil against him, period. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not use the gift of God as a tool to sin against him. Well, how could we? How could you do that? What would that even look like? For the child of God to use God's gifts as a chance to sin, that would be treason on a level which is almost incomprehensible. I would never do that. Now, because I know what just bloomed in many of your hearts... I need to move quickly. What just happened, if you're a child of God, is you just mentally immediately overcorrected. For weeks, I have been talking about legalism. For weeks, I have been beating the horse of you cannot earn the approval of God. Stop trying to put God into your debt by observing the law. Frantic religious activity is not pleasing to God. The issue at hand is one of relationship, not conduct. Legalism leads to self-righteousness. Legalism leads to constantly comparing yourself to others. And on and on and on and on I've gone. But the instant, the moment I said the words, how could we use the gift of God as a tool to sin against him? Panic exploded in me many of our hearts how could I you thought incredulously how could I use my freedom as an opportunity uh, for the flesh come watch me every day and I'll show you exactly how I do it (laughs) I still have remaining sin I take grace for granted I am a terrible son or daughter I'm probably not even saved. So I'm pleading with you to steer back, okay, and see what Paul means. Wait just a moment. You can rush to judgment of yourself when we get done. But wait just a moment and see before you swing right off the path of liberty into legalism. In an effort to avoid licentiousness, see what Paul means. Verse 13 again. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through... Oh, not through the wrath of God? Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Or you could say the whole law is... Summed up in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't take the gift that God has given you and use it as a tool to sin against him. Easy. The flesh being all of those wrong-headed desires that you have that are self-destructive and image-marring. Instead of using your gift to serve yourself, or instead of using your gift as a tool to sin against God, instead of using your gift as an opportunity for the flesh, instead of using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, what Paul just said is do this rather. Use it to serve someone else. Mm -hmm. See, he doesn't say don't be at liberty, be in bondage. That's not what he just said. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Punish the flesh. Frenetic religious activity. That's not what he said. He said, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, use it to love someone else. Well, maybe your father in heaven, who gave Paul these words, Through the anointing of the Holy Spirit and protected these words for a couple thousand years so that we could read them, is trying to orient you in the right direction here. Perhaps. The design of this warning is not to induce panic in you over your remaining sinfulness. The design is to keep you out of the chasm of licentiousness. How do we end up exchanging relationship with God for license? How does it happen? Look at Matthew 5. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not one dot of the law will pass away until the end of time. That means, agree or disagree, that means the law is forever. Till Jesus comes back anyway. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, will be called least. They will be worthless. That means that, that any so-called Bible teacher who says that the law has been done away with is a heretic. I'm not trying to trick you. That like, I'm not even being sarcastic. I really mean that. Any so-called Bible teacher who says the law has been done away with is a heretic. So How do we avoid legalism then? Jesus just said the law is forever. And if you don't do it and teach others to do it, you're least. If you do do it and teach others to do it, you're greatest. It's better then to abide by the law, right? (laughs) Well, then how are we not going to become legalistic? Hearing Jesus say the law is forever kind of makes me want to be legalistic. I don't know about you, but Galatians has made it clear that that's not what God intends. So don't do that. Let's not do that. Let's not run headlong into that ditch. How can we steer out of the ditch of legalism without running right into license? The answer? By presuming that because we are no longer under the law, does not mean we no longer acknowledge the law. If you want to steer out of legalism into license, disregard the law entirely. By wrongly believing that because Jesus fulfilled the law, he also somehow destroyed it, you permit yourself to engage in every atrocity that your flesh has ever come up with. When the reality is that all along the path of liberty, listen to me, all along the path of liberty are guardrails to protect you from running into either of those chaotic chasms. And the guardrails are made up of the law. See what Paul told us? Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Two points then, quickly, and I'll be done. All right, two points. First, the goal of the law is to keep us from our own tendency towards selfishness. Second, selflessness is only expressed in relationships. You might think, that you're selfless towards your pets, I assure you, your selflessness is better expressed towards your spouse, towards your kids, towards your friends. That's it. But let me say those two things again a different way, again, really quickly. First, the role of the law in the life of the believer is that of a life preserver. The role of the law in the life of a believer is that of a life preserver. Second, obedience to the law of God will always look like love for God and others. We are not slaves to the law. This is so important. We are not slaves to the law. Rather, it is serving us. This is how the psalmist can write, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. It's like honey on my lips. Well, you don't read somebody slamming a gate in front of you and saying, you're not allowed to go there and think, I love that. (laughs) But how many of us can say, yeah, I've looked back at some doors that got shut in my face and I am so thankful that they did. Where God said, No, uh, 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 you're not doing that. You're not doing that. I'll make you sick unto death before I let you do that. The law protects us from running either into legalism or into licentiousness. So the law is constantly nudging us in the direction of taking the love of God which was poured into our hearts and dispersing it out to those around us and being a blessing to someone else with it. Let me say those two points one more way. First, God's law directs us to love others. Isn't that what he said? The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love, as we all know, is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do someone else good at your own expense. You all know that. You all have it memorized word for word, right? Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do someone else good at your own expense. Sex before marriage is not love. Doing drugs is not love. Cheating on your taxes. Not love. Now, open rebellion with an armed militia, I can get behind that. That was just for John. Abusive words for your spouse or your kids. It's not love. And we know that. We go, of course, that's not love. Neither are deceptive words. Neither is permitting sin in your house and turning a blind eye to it. Love is an act of the will. It's something that you want to do. It's accompanied by emotion. There's a real heartfelt nature to love. It's designed with somebody else in the crosshairs, not yourself. And it always costs you something. So the law can be summed up in these words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Second, you cannot do this by expecting everyone else to serve you. I mean, it's just that simple. You you, you cannot be in relationship with God and his people and operate with the expectation that God exists for your pleasure and so does everybody else. That's licentiousness. Nor can you do this by avoiding everyone who is unworthy of you. Licentiousness declares that you are to be served, honored, and pleased above all else. Liberty declares that you are free to serve, honor, and bless God and others. So what we'll see in the coming weeks is if legalism is the result of believing that you can merit salvation with your works, licentiousness is the result of believing that salvation changes your legal and familial status without changing your nature. Both errors betray a lack of genuine relationship with God, and the law exists to correct error. Let's pray.